0: Chapter 1 of Modeste Mignon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Don Jenkins. Modeste Mignon by Henri de Balzac. Translated by Catherine Prescott Warmley. Chapter 1 the chalet. At the beginning of October 1829, Monsieur Simon babilas Tournay, notary, was walking up from Havre to Ingeville, arm in arm with his son, and accompanied by his wife, at whose side the head clerk of the lawyer's office, a little hunchback named Jean Butzka, trotted along like a page. On these four personages, two of whom came the same way every evening, reached the elbow of the road where it turns back upon itself like those called in italy commis the notary looked about to see if anyone could overhear him either from the terrace above or the path beneath and when he spoke he lowered his voice as a further precaution exupere he said to his son you must try to carry out intelligently a little manoeuvre which i shall explain to you but you are not to ask the meaning of it And if you guess the meaning, I command you to toss it into that sticks which every lawyer and every man who expects to have a hand in government of his country is bound to keep within him for the secrets of others. After you have paid your respects and compliments to Madame and Mademoiselle Mignon, to Monsieur and Madame Dumay, and to Monsieur Guggenheim, if he is at the chalet, and as soon as quiet is restored, Monsieur Dumais will take you aside. You are then to look attentively at Mademoiselle Modeste, yes, I am willing to allow it, during the whole time he is speaking to you. My worthy friend will ask you to go out and take a walk. At the end of an hour, that is, about nine o'clock, you are to come back in a great hurry, try to puff as if you were out of breath, and whisper in Monsieur Dumais's ear, quite low, but so that Mademoiselle Modeste is sure to overhear you, these words, The young man has come exuperé was to start the next morning for paris to begin the study of law this impending departure had induced la Tournée to propose him to his friend Dumay as an accomplice in the important conspiracy which these directions indicate is mademoiselle modeste suspected of having a lover asked boucher in a timid voice of madame la Tournée, hush boucher she replied taking her husband's arm Madame Lortenay, the daughter of a clerk of the Supreme Court, feels that her birth authorizes her to claim issue from a parliamentary family. This conviction explains why the lady, who is somewhat blotched as to complexion, endeavors to assume in her own person the majesty of a court whose decrees are recorded in her father's pothooks. She takes snuff, holds herself as stiff as a ramrod, poses for a person of consideration, and resembles nothing so much as a mummy brought momentarily to life by galvanism. She tries to give high-bred tones to her sharp voice and succeeds no better in doing that than in hiding her general lack of breeding. Her social usefulness seems, however, uncontestable when we glance at the flower-bedecked cap she wears, at the false front frizzling around her forehead, at the gowns of her choice. For how could shopkeepers dispose of these products if there were no Madame Latournay? All these absurdities of the worthy woman who was truly pious and charitable might have passed unnoticed if nature amusing herself as she often does by turning out these ludicrous creations had not endowed her with the height of a drum-major and thus held up to view the comicalities of her provincial nature she has never been out of havre she believes in the infallibility of havre she proclaims herself norman to the very tips of her fingers she venerates her father and adores her husband Little Latournay was bold enough to marry this lady after she had attained the anti age of thirty-three, and what is more, he had a son by her. As he could have got the sixty thousand francs for her dot in several other ways, the public assigned this uncommon intrepidity to a desire to escape an invasion of the Minotaur, against whom his personal qualifications would have insufficiently protected him, had he rashly dared his fate by bringing home a young and pretty wife the fact was however that the notary recognized the really fine qualities of mademoiselle agnes she was called agnes and reflected to himself that a woman's beauty is soon past and gone to a husband as to the insignificant youth on whom the clerk of the court bestowed in baptism his norman name of exupere Madame la is still so surprised at becoming his mother at the age of thirty-five years and seven months she would still provide him if it were necessary with her breast and her milk and hyperbole which alone can fully express her impassioned maternity how handsome he is that son of mine she says to her little friend modeste as they walk to church with the beautiful exupere in front of them he is like you modeste mignon answers very much as she might have said what horrid weather this silhouette of Madame Latournay is quite important as an accessory inasmuch as for three years she has been the chaperon of the young girl against whom the notary and his friend Dumay are now plotting to set up what we have called in the physiologie du mirage a mouse-trap. As for Latournay, imagine a worthy little fellow as sly as the purest honor and uprightness would allow him to be a man whom any stranger would take for a rascal at sight of his queer physiognomy, to which, however, the inhabitants of Havre were well accustomed. His eyesight, said to be weak, obliged the worthy man to wear green goggles for the protection of his eyes, which were constantly inflamed. The arch of each eyebrow, defined by a thin down of hair, surrounded the tortoise-shell rim of the glasses and made a couple of circles, as it were, slightly apart if you have never observed on the human face the effect produced by these circumferences placed one within the other and separated by a hollow space or line you can hardly imagine how perplexing such a face will be to you especially if pale hollow-cheeked and terminating in a pointed chin like that of mephistopheles a type which painters give to cats this double resemblance was observable in the face of babilas Laternay. Above the atrocious green spectacles rose a bald crown, all the more crafty in expression because a wig, seemingly endowed with motion, let the white hairs show on all sides of it as it meandered crookedly across the forehead. An observer taking note of this excellent Norman, clothed in black and mounted on his two legs like a beetle on a couple of pins, and knowing him to be one of the most trustworthy of men, would have sought without finding it for the reason of such physical misrepresentation. Jean Butzka, a natural son, abandoned by his parents and taken care of by the clerk of the court and his daughter, and now through sheer hard work, head clerk to the notary, fed and lodged by his master, who gave him a salary of nine hundred francs, almost a dwarf, with no semblance of youth, Jean Butzka made modest his idol, and would willingly have given his life for hers. The poor fellow, whose eyes were hollowed beneath their heavy lids like the touch-holes of a cannon, whose head overweighted his body with its shock of crisp hair, and whose face was pockmarked, had lived under pitying eyes from the time he was seven years of age. Is not that enough to explain his whole being? Silent, self-contained, pious, exemplary in conduct, he went his way over that vast tract of country named on the map of the heart Love Without Hope, the sublime and arid steps of desire. Modeste had christened this grotesque little being her black dwarf, The nickname sent him to the pages of Walter Scott's novel, and he one day said to Modeste, Will you accept a rose against the evil day from your mysterious dwarf? Modeste instantly sent the soul of her adorer to its humble mud-cabin with a terrible glance, such as young girls bestow on the men who cannot please them. Butchka's conception of himself was lowly, and like the wife of his master he had never been out of Havre. Perhaps it will be well, for the sake of those who have never seen that city, to say a few words as to the present destination of the Latournay family, the head clerk being included in the latter term. Ingleville is to Havre what Montmartre is to Paris, a high hill at the foot of which the city lies, with this difference that the hill and the city are surrounded by sea and the Seine that Havre is helplessly circumscribed by enclosing fortifications, and, in short, that the mouth of the river, the harbour, and the docks prevent a very different aspect from the fifty thousand houses of Paris. At the foot of Montmartre, an ocean of slate roofs lies in motionless blue billows. At Ingovie, the sea is like the same roofs stirred by the wind. This eminence, or line of hills which coasts the Seine from Rouen to the seashore, leaving a margin of valley-land more or less narrow between itself and the river and containing in its cities its ravines its vales its meadows veritable treasures of the picturesque became of enormous value in and about Ingeville after the year eighteen sixteen the period at which the prosperity of havre began this township has become since that time the attire the ville Vray, the montmorency in short the suburban residence of the merchants of havre Here they build their houses on terrace, around its amphitheater of hills, and breathe the sea air laden with the fragrance of their splendid gardens. Here these bold speculators cast off the burden of their counting rooms and the atmosphere of their city houses, which are built closely together without open spaces, often without courtyards, a vice of construction with the increasing population of Havre. The inflexible line of the fortifications and the enlargement of the docks is forced upon them. The result is weariness of heart in Havre, cheerfulness and joy at Ingeville. The law of social development has forced up the suburb of Gravel like a mushroom. It is today more extensive than Havre itself, which lies at the foot of its slopes like a serpent. At the crest of the hill, Engoville has but one street, and, as in all such situations, the houses which overlook the river have an immense advantage over those on the other side of the road whose view they obstruct, and which present the effect of standing on tiptoe to look over the opposing roofs however there exist here as elsewhere certain servitudes some houses standing at the summit have a finer position or possess legal rights of view which compel their opposite neighbors to keep their buildings down to a required height moreover the openings cut in the capricious rock by roads which follow its declensions and make the amphitheatre habitable give vistas through which some estates can see the city or the river or the sea. Instead of rising to an actual peak, the hill ends abruptly in a cliff. At the end of the street which follows the line of the summit, ravines appear in which a few villages are clustered, Saint Andresse and two or three other Saint somethings, together with several creeks which murmur and flow with the tides of the sea. These half deserted slopes of Ingleville form a striking contrast to the terraces of fine villas which overlook the valley of the sand. Is the wind on this side too strong for vegetation? Do the merchants shrink from the cost of terracing it? However this may be, the traveller approaching Havre on a steamer is surprised to find a barren coast and tangled gorges to the west of Ingeville, like a beggar in rags beside a perfumed and sumptuously apparelled rich man in eighteen twenty nine one of the last houses looking toward the sea and which in all probability stands about the centre of the ingleville today, was called and perhaps is still called the chalet originally it was a porter's lodge with a trim little garden in front of it the owner of the villa to which it belonged a mansion with park gardens aviaries hot houses, and lawns took a fancy to put the little dwelling more in keeping with the splendor of his own abode and he reconstructed it on the model of an ornamental cottage. He divided this cottage from his own lawn, which was bordered and set with flower-beds, and formed the terrace of of his villa by a low wall along which he planted a concealing hedge. Behind the cottage, called, in spite of all his efforts to prevent it, the chalet, were the orchards and kitchen-gardens of the villa. The chalet, without cows or dairy, is separated from the roadway by a wooden fence whose palings are hidden under a luxuriant hedge. On the other side of the road, the opposite house, subject to a legal privilege, has similar hedge and palings, so as to leave an unobstructed view of Havre to the chalet. This little dwelling was the torment of the present proprietor of the villa, Monsieur Vilquin, and here is why and the wherefore the original creator of the villa, whose sumptuous details cry aloud, Behold our millions! extended his park far into the country for the purpose, as he averred, of getting his gardeners out of his pockets, and so, when the chalet was finished, none but a friend could be allowed to inhabit it. Monsieur Mignon, the next owner of the property, was very much attached to his cashier de Mai, and the following history will prove that the attachment was mutual. To him, therefore, he offered the little dwelling de a stickler for legal methods insisted on signing a lease for three hundred francs for twelve years and monsieur mignon willingly agreed remarking my dear de remember you have now bound yourself to live with me for twelve years in consequence of certain events which will presently be related the estates of monsieur mignon formerly the richest merchant in havre were sold to vilquin one of his business competitors in his joy at getting possession of the celebrated villa mignon the latter forgot to demand the cancelling of the lease mai anxious not to hinder the sale would have signed anything vilkin required but the sale once made he held to his lease like a vengeance and there he remained in vilkin's pocket as it were at the heart of vilkin's family life observing vilkin irritating vilkin in short the gadfly of all the vilkins Every morning, when he looked out of his window, Vilkin felt a violent shock of annoyance as his eye lighted on the little gem of a building, the chalet, which had cost 60,000 francs and sparkled like a ruby in the sun. That comparison is very nearly exact. The architect has constructed the cottage of brilliant red brick pointed with white. The window frames are painted of a lively green. The woodwork is brown, verging on yellow. The roof overhangs by several feet. A pretty gallery with open-work balustrade surmounts the lower floor and projects at the centre of the façade into a veranda with glass slides. The ground floor has a charming salon and a dining-room, separated from each other by the landing of a staircase built of wood, designed and decorated with elegant simplicity. The kitchen is behind the dining-room, and the corresponding room back of the salon, formerly a study, is now the bedroom of Monsieur and Madame de May. On the upper floor, the architect has managed to get two large bedrooms, each with a dressing-room, to which the veranda serves as a salon. And above this floor, under the eaves, which are tipped together like a couple of cards, are two servants' rooms with mansard roofs, each lighted by a circular window intolerably spacious. Villekin has been petty enough to build a high wall on the side toward the orchard and kitchen-garden, and in consequence of this piece of spite, The few square feet which the lease secured to the chalet resembled a Parisian garden. The outbuildings, painted in keeping with the cottage, stood with their backs to the wall of the adjoining property. The interior of this charming dwelling harmonized with its exterior. The salon, floored entirely with ironwood, was painted in a style that suggested the beauties of Chinese lacquer. On black panels edged with gold, birds of every color, foliage of impossible greens, and fantastic oriental designs glowed and shimmered the dining-room was entirely sheathed in northern woods carved and cut in openwork like the beautiful russian chalets the little antechamber formed by the landing and the well of the staircase was painted in old oak to represent a gothic ornament the bedrooms hung with chintz were charming in their costly simplicity the study where the cashier and his wife now slept was panelled from top to bottom on the walls and ceiling like the cabin of a steamboat these luxuries of his predecessor excited vilquin's wrath he would fain have lodged his daughter and her husband in the cottage this desire well known to demy will presently serve to illustrate the breton obstinacy of the latter the entrance to the chalet is by a little trellised iron door the uprights of which ending in lance-heads show for a few inches above the fence and its hedge the little garden about as wide as the more pretentious lawn was just now filled with flowers roses and dahlias of the choicest kind many rare products of the hothouses for another vilquinard grievance the elegant little hot house a very whim of a hot house, a hothouse representing dignity and style belonged to the chalet and separated or if you prefer united it to the villa vilquin dumay consoled himself for the toils of business and taking care of his hot-house whose exotic treasures were one of modeste's joys the billiard-room of the villa Vilkin, a species of gallery formerly communicated through an immense aviary with this hot-house but after the building of the wall which deprived him of a view into the orchards demy bricked up the door of communication wall for wall he said in 1827, Vilquin offered Dumay a salary of 6,000 francs and 10,000 more as indemnity if he would give up the lease. The cashier refused, though he had but 3,000 francs from Gobenheim, a former clerk of his master. Dumay was a Breton transplanted by fate into Normandy. Imagine, therefore, the hatred conceived for the tenants of the chalet by the Norman Vilkin, a man worth three millions what criminal lesmillon me on on the part of the cashier to hold up to the eyes of such a man the impotence of his wealth Vilkin, whose desperation in the matter made him the talk of havre had just proposed to give dumais a pretty house of his own and had again been refused havre itself began to grow uneasy at the man's obstinacy and a good many persons explained it by the phrase dumais is a breton as for the cashier he thought madame and mademoiselle mignon would be ill-lodged elsewhere his two idols now inhabited a temple worthy of them the sumptuous little cottage gave them a home where these dethroned royalties could keep the semblance of majesty about them a species of dignity usually denied to those who have seen better days Perhaps, as the story goes on, the reader will not regret having learned in advance a few particulars as to the home and the habitual companions of Modeste Mignon, for, at her age, people and things have as much influence upon the future life as a person's own character. Indeed, character often receives ineffaceable impressions from its surroundings. End of Section 1 of Modeste Mignon by Henri de Balzac Recorded by Don Jenkins Rancho San Diego, California shaggybark.blogspot.com com